Hey, um, we started a brand new series last week called Roma Perpetua. Uh, both of our people who have done the video the last two weeks have not been able to pronounce it correctly, so obviously it was a bad choice of a, a title for a series. That's okay. It's all good. Um, the idea behind it has been this. In ancient Rome, emperors would uh, imprint their coinage with their face, with their name, and whatever their motto was uh, for their campaign at that time, for their administration or whatever. And it's kind of been a holdover even for American currency. The, the dollar bills that you have in your wallet have a picture of a dead president on it. His name is underneath that photo. Uh, and then there are a lot of mottos about the nation, not specifically that person's administration, but the mottos of the nation, either e pluribus unum or in God we trust. Uh, one of the coins uh, came from Emperor Vespasian's day and time, and the coin had his picture, it said Vespasian on it, and it also said Roma Perpetua, and there was another version called Roma Eterna. Both of them meant Rome in perpetuity or Rome Eternal. Essentially, the message is, uh, look at how big this empire is. It is too big to fail. Um, look at how advanced we are. Like Rome at that point had, had been in power for so long, the general feeling was, this is never going to end. Um, and we kind of get that a little bit, even in America. It feels like America's uh, reached this pinnacle of success or whatever. And we kinda, we've, all we've ever known, and I, I promise this is, this is true, I don't care how old you are, all you've ever known your entire life is, Rome, is, uh, is America as a superpower, as the decisions that we make in our government affect the entire world. That's kind of how it was going on with Rome, but even more so because they were really the only game in town. And so this has been a, a series addressing that kind of a perception of invincibility, of, of power, of, of centralized uh, power or whatever. So Jesus one day is uh, walking with his disciples, and they are outside of the temple in Jerusalem. This would be the second temple, the temple that Herod built to kind of impress uh, Emperor Augustus. Uh, and he looks at this giant temple with these giant slabs of rocks, the, the size that makes you stop and go, how in the world did they ever get those there? Uh, he looks at this thing, and he has these comments to his disciples, and he says this, these things that you see, this temple that you see, days shall come in which there not, shall not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, this immaculate, giant, how did they do this? Where did it come from? This is not going away, is eventually not going to exist. Um, and uh, for us, it's been a, a, a take on then, um, sometimes there are things that look invincible, that look insurmountable, that look like how could they ever get beat, and then they eventually do. It's, uh, it's kind of an awareness deal. So last week, the uh, idea, the principal teaching or whatever walkaway point was that which currently is may not always be, which can be we can react to that in a couple of different ways. Um, if we don't like how things are, then that can be an inspiring, hopeful thing. Uh, for Jesus talking to his disciples who probably weren't qualified to participate in all of the temple activities, for then Jesus to say this whole temple thing that looks insurmountable is going to eventually go away would have been a point for them to be like, well, good. I don't know what's going to replace it, but it's probably better than the option that we currently have. Uh, but for those of you who are in control and like how things are going, when you hear the message of things that are the way that they currently are may not always be, it can feel like, well, I don't know. I kind of like how things are. I'm in control right now. I feel like I've got good kind of ground under me. I feel like I'm making progress in life. The business is doing well. School is going well. Finances are going well. My relationship with my spouse or my significant other or whatever, it's going well. I don't know if I, I, I like change. I kind of like steadiness. That's why I live in the Tri-Cities, guys. I like, I like being able to be like, it's probably going to be sunny today. So uh, that's, uh, that's kind of what we feel like sometimes, and so that's important. All right. This week, that which appears to be perfect may have some serious 
critical flaws. That which appears to be perfect may actually, in fact, have some serious critical flaws. Um, That which feels currently insurmountable, impenetrable, invincible may actually be vulnerable. Or, as I like to call it, today we're going to be talking about the Death Star problem, or another term, how I eventually talked my wife into dating me. Those are all things that appear to be impossible, and then somehow there's some vulnerability in it. However, I did say the word impenetrable, so we're going to go with the Death Star problem instead of the one that involves my wife. So, um, for reasons I hope are obvious, um, this is, uh, this, is the, this is the classic Death Star problem. Uh, the Death Star is introduced uh, early on in uh, episode four, um, and it's this uh, massive thing that can take out an entire planet. Uh, I hope I'm not ruining it for you. It's been like 30 years. You should probably have seen this by now. Um, and uh, it's, there's, yeah, probably, probably more like 40, 50. I, don't, I, don't even, I can't even remember. Uh, I was born the year that the episode six came out. I do remember that. So I, I don't remember that, but I remember that as part of history. So, um, and that I won't tell you how old I am. Uh, but the Death Star was like, they, they kept talking about how big this thing is, how well guarded it was, how shielded it was, how all of these things are going on, how invincible it felt, how insurmountable it would be, how unbeatable. But wait, have we told you about the thermal exhaust port. Now, there's no great reason it would have one of these, but if you shot two ion torpedoes in this, in this thing, it would destroy the entire deal. Now, we didn't find out until Rogue One why that thing was installed, which is the best movie since the original trilogy, by the way. But it feels like, again, this thing that feels insurmountable, hold up, wait, there's a little bit of, an, a little bit of vulnerability. There's a little bit of risk involved in this thing. And it's pretty classic... Uh, it's a pretty classic uh, superhero platform in terms of like how superhero movies are written because they're coming out like every two weeks now, and um, every single one of them, different characters, different villains, different whatevers, but the plot lines are still the same. Uh, I, in fact, I sat down yesterday and, and wrote out for you how all of these work out as it relates to the Death Star problem, just translated into kind of whatever the new, the new villain or the new uh, superhero is. Uh, 33% of the movie, the first 33% is spent on character development. Every superhero movie um, shows you, here's, here's, here's who your new hero is, guys. Here's who we're supposed to get excited about. And there's some humor in how they figure out how they kind of work their little superpowers and get that thing going. Uh, then there's 33% plot development, which is the introduction of the villain who it, in, it, uh, in, uh, introduces us to a problem, an issue. There's conflict. The hero cannot exist without conflict. There's going to be some conflict. 33% is like, here's how bad this guy is. Uh, Thanos is, is uh, unbeatable. We don't know what to do. Uh, uh, everything that we try, he's got an answer for. Uh, every, everything that we do doesn't seem to have an effect on it. So uh, then 33% of it is spent on discovering a potential vulnerability. We try and be like, there's got to be some sort of weakness. There's got to be some sort of kryptonite. There's got to be sort of, how do we, there's the, there, we, we, we have a hero. We have a villain who's really horrible. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then the very last 1% of the movie is actually doing something about said vulnerability. I have just laid out for you every single superhero movie that you're going to go see. I am available for screenwriting if anybody's interested in doing that Uh, as a side job. We know this. We know this. That which appears to be perfect may have some actually some serious critical flaws. Therefore, we should walk slowly. And we know this. This is why right here, this is why you shouldn't marry the first Tinder profile that you see. This is... uh, this is why uh, this should be at the forefront of your mind if you're doing social media in a healthy way. You should have this not far from your mind at all times. Uh, this is why everyone that you know is one terrible tweet away from irrelevancy. Uh, 
um, is because everything can come crashing down in one minute moment. So in order to illustrate what that has to do with us, I want to tell you a little bit about a guy named Paul and his interactions in a place called Corinth. Uh, there's two books in the New Testament called First and Second Corinthians. They come from letters that he wrote back and forth to this place. Um, but in order to kind of set the context for who is involved in this conversation, uh, let me talk to you a little bit about Corinth. There's a city in the southern part of Greece named Corinth that was completely destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, then rebuilt in 44 BC by Julius Caesar because he figured out a way to be able to make money off of this place. Corinth, if you look at a, a map of Greece, on the bottom part, there's like one little, like almost an island part called Peloponnesus, and it's connected by a little, little land bridge that connects it to the mainland. That little place right there uh, is, uh, is the place where Corinth was kind of located in. Um, if you wanted to avoid having to sail all around for a small fee, you could pay the toll. You use the newly established Roman road to deliver your goods between these two places. Uh, it was uh, close to water, close to two, two big water, bodies of water, so access to, in terms of ports were big. Um, it was eventually given a special designation by Caesar as an official colony, which would be something that would be significant, right? This would be a, uh, a unique title that was not given out very, uh, very often. Um, it would mean that the Roman laws would be the ones that would uh, operate here. Um, when, when Rome would uh, kind of capture all of these different distant cities, they kind of would allow them to do whatever they wanted to do as long as you paid taxes to Rome and, and like ultimate authority would laid with us. But when it came to colonies, it was like, hey, we're going to try and um, push as much of Roman culture into that city as possible. So the law system, how all things work in that way, the currency, the taxes exemptions are going to take place. Uh, there's going to be lots of money funneled into this area, particularly from the government. Soldiers who would go off to battle for be soldiers as a career uh, would be promised some sort of a land uh, when they would return. Their pension would be, we're going to give you X amount of acres of land. Now, if you want that land in Rome, we'll give you this many acres. But if you're willing to move to one of these newly established colonies, Corinth being the top one to go to, we'll give you 10 times as much land or 20 times as much land. So these people, as long as you're willing to not live in crowded Rome, we'll send you to these different areas. So imagine... Imagine a city where the primary form of employment is government funds and there, like, all, like a significant majority of the money that comes in is, is government funded. And they had a nuclear actual reservation. No, they didn't, but very similar, okay? Corinth. Uh, by Paul's day, it would become the third largest metropolitan area behind only Rome itself and Alexandria and Egypt. It made the Forbes bit list of best places to live 17 times. People from California would retire. They would sell their house and they would move to Corinth and retire there. It was the tri-cities of the Roman Empire, you guys. It was the up-and-coming place you wanted to be. All right. I feel like a commercial for the tri-cities visitor bureau. Um, the nice thing about Corinth, too... Uh, there was no old money. It was a very new city. Um, in Rome, you had established families, and, and everybody kind of knew each other. And to, in terms of social hierarchy, you were kind of born into it, and you really kind of you could go up and down a little bit, but nothing really big. But in a new city with no, with no kind of formal way of doing things, you could become whoever you really wanted to be as long as your personality and your wealth and your gregariousness or whatever carried yourself to be able to go and do that. So it attracted a lot of entrepreneurs. It attracted uh, a lot of people who wanted to uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and 
and do something with their life and, uh, and, and really make this thing happen. It was very capitalistic in that way. Um, in that way, uh, it was also natural to boast about your personal achievements. It felt like the only way to be heard. Uh, even though everybody probably hate, hated it, everybody, it was a very boastful town. People just did that sort of thing. Can you imagine a world where boasting about personal achievements and thinking that that's the only way to be heard and having it be hated by everyone, but like you'd be weird to not participate? Can you imagine living in a world like that? Um, this, because of its current status with all of the things going on, would be a no-brainer for Paul um, as he begins his missionary journey. Paul um, experiences the conversion on the road to Damascus. Uh, that's a story in Acts that you can read about. Um, the church has been uh, the, the church has taken has has received this new this new religion, basically this new idea that the God, the Logos of the universe, made himself known through a person named Jesus who died, who was crucified at the hands of the Romans as a criminal death, an embarrassing death, but then rose again three days later uh, and conquered even that thing that we fear most, which is death and non-existence. Uh, therefore, we should probably learn about him, listen to what he had to say, follow in his teachings, know everything that we can about who he was, what he did, and what he meant to us. Um, and then, then when after he even rose from the dead, he had this conversation with the disciples about go into all the world, spreading the gospel. And, and the disciples were like, yes, let's do it. And then they went from Jerusalem, and they went all the way to Galilee, which is you know, 10, 15 miles. Away. And then they went all the way to this, and they went all the way to, and barely moved at all. And Paul is kind of one of those guys that's like, Get, let me do it. I'll do it, right? I'm going to go into Asia Minor. I'm going to go into Greece. I'm going to go as far as Rome. I'm going to expand this thing. You, you guys are thinking all too small-minded. Give, give me some reins. Give me some power to be able to go do this. So he plans what he calls missionary journeys. He, for a, lo a long period of time, I'm going to go from one place. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to start a church. Then I'll go to the next place. I'm going to do this. And eventually he'd make his way back home in Antioch, and then he would do it all again. He had three different missionary journeys. And for sure, the, one of the spots that he definitely wanted to hit, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, is a little town, up and coming, wealthy, prosperous, a crossroads of currency, a crossroads of commerce, a crossroads of culture in general, a little place called Corinth, where the beer flows like wine. We are headed to Corinth, everybody. That's a dumb and dumb reference. I'm way too old for that now. Sorry. Um, uh, so he's like, we're going to go. We're, gonna, we're, we're definitely going to stop there. He spends a year. Here's what we know about Paul in Corinth. He spends a year and a half there, primarily um, because, he, again, he wanted to establish churches. But that was, about, you know, that was quite a bit longer, two or three times longer than what he would spend in, say, a place like Philippi or Ephesus. Um, and probably for reasons being this, he also was a tent maker by trade. Um, he was a fabric. He would do, build all these, not like personal tents, but like they would have shops and tents. he would build the big ones. Uh, and so uh, you go to wherever the jobs are and the jobs were in Corinth. And so stayed there probably for financial reasons. And also I would imagine he looked at a place like Corinth and goes, if anything is going to help a new religion sort of take off, we got to have a foothold here. We got to have a place here. It's the basic rule of real estate, right? Location, location, location. If we could have a church in Corinth, this whole thing could spread like wildfire. This is a good spot to be at. Spends a year and a half there, eventually leaves, begins to write letters of correspondence back and forth to church as sort of an external advisor. A couple of those letters are kept for us from the early church. That's, what's, that's how we have the first and second Corinthian uh, letters in that way. Now, the problem arises that he has departed after being there for a year and a half, uh, and through correspondence realizes that there are some issues that are beginning to take place. Uh, and this is one of his favorite places to uh, be. Imagine, uh, imagine having invested that much time, more time than anything else, 
Um, imagine having such high hopes for this thing and then watching it struggle. I, I, I'm not a teacher. I've never been a teacher. Uh, I'm told that teachers aren't supposed to have favorites. Um, I know from experience that they do um, because we've had parent-teacher conferences and they tell them my kids are their favorites. So there we go. Um, that's what Paul is doing with this letter. When you read it, you see him get real defensive and real aggressive and not sugarcoat anything. And I think it's because he really genuinely cares a lot about this and feels like if I'm going to have success, this is, this is um, on my list of accounts, this is the big one. <laughs> I can't afford to lose this one. I need this one to work. So he writes a letter. Now, we don't have the first letter that he wrote to them. Uh, but we do know that it existed because in his second letter, he references the first one. So in his second letter, the second letter was kept by the early church. It became known as 1 Corinthians. Are you with me so far? That's a little bit confusing. Second letter, 1 Corinthians. He writes and he addresses some serious issues he sees arising within this small church community. He hears stories about people who are, are, are now dating their moms, dads. It's weird. There's like some stuff that is being accepted in this community that wouldn't be accepted even by the pagan culture surrounding it. And Paul's like, hey, uh, not only do we have standards, we have to have higher standards than what we see from other people. That, that kind of stuff is like, it's weird. It's gross. Stop. Don't do that. Don't date people you're related to the same last name, okay? We've got to figure this thing out. And there's some other issues in there, issues with money and issues with um, uh, 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 how the church would spend their time together and function. All kinds of stuff is happening. So he, he addresses it, and he speaks as one who has authority, and they should probably listen to it. Now, reminder, he was there for a year and a half, but he left, and he's writing this sometime after that. We're not exactly sure how long after that, but for sure, the church had probably expanded and grown. There were probably some people who were now considered themselves part of the Corinthian church, but didn't really know who Paul was. And this letter shows up, and they're like, who's this guy? And they're like, oh, this is Paul who was helping us get this thing started. And then Paul assumes this authority, like, I have the authority to be able to say these things, and you should listen to me. And there was probably some within this church community who were like, who's this Paul guy? Why would we, why would we want to listen to him? This sounds um, like he's assuming more authority than he's been afforded. Like, I don't really know him. And then there's probably some, as we're going to find out, who didn't really like Paul in the first place, who were like looking for an excuse not to like Paul. Paul had a unique, brusque personality, right? By his own admission throughout other letters of the gospel, he would often write about how he uh, uh, like, there are some people who liked him, really liked him, and then really don't. You have friends like that. You either really, you really like them. Some people really don't like them. You're like, I get it. I understand that. My friend Ryan's like that. I totally understand. I get that you don't like him. I find myself, I do, but whatever. Um, in this up and coming city, this prosperous, progressive city, there was a few people who were afraid that Paul was a little too backwater a little too redneck, a little too Jerusalem-y, a little too Israel-y, a little, a little not, not as good as we are. Um, and he wasn't quite the right guy, the right fit to take them to the next level. You're a great guy, but, you know, we, we have a more enlightened uh, outlook on this sort of stuff. We are more aware of ourselves. Um, we like to call ourselves Seattle. So we, we feel, no, I'm just kidding, right? Um, but they're like, Paul, we think you're a great guy, but probably for something else, you're a, we, you're a little bit broken for us. 
I mean, you're good, but it's a little rough around the edges. You feel a little un- Someone in Corinth are probably saying this. Um, you feel a little un- underqualified. Um, you keep talking about how we're naturally born selfish people, like left to ourselves, we're not that great, and we feel kind of pretty great, so maybe we need somebody a little bit more positive. And then he would show up, too, um, on his second missionary journey, and people would be like, oh, this is Paul? Like, and, and by his own admission, in other places, people are not impressed with me in person, right? Have you, ever, have you ever met somebody who in real life didn't match up to the expectations that you had of them? You built it up. Have you ever done any online dating ever? That's the question that really... Or maybe, maybe it worked out like this. Or maybe somebody said, I think you might like my pastor. You should come and check it out on a Sunday. And then you're here today, right? And you're like, eh. You know what I mean? <laughs> I get it. That, that's the world that Paul probably existed in. So... He hears what's going on in this church. He writes them a letter. He goes back for a visit. Uh, There's some issues going on. There's some people who are rejecting his authority. He finds himself leaving, and and, he leaves not in the greatest of terms. So he writes a third letter. Um, This letter was not kept for us. We don't have a record of it. We know it existed because he references it in the fourth letter. And the reason I think that we don't have it in the third letter is because I, I really, this is Brent talk, so this is not like, you know, biblical or theological or whatever. But I think it was so aggressive and the language is so out there that the church was like, well, we can't keep this. We can't put this in the Bible, right? Uh, We'll have to change the parental rating on the very front of this thing if we're going to do this because this does not qualify for what's taking place here. Um, So he sends this letter, which apparently was pretty harsh, because then he feels bad about it later. In fact, he sends uh, some of his apprentices, Titus and Timothy. He says, hey, if you're around there, could you stop in there and check on them to see if they, A, they got my letter because I never re- received a response, and if they've uh, you know, started figuring things out and doing things a little bit better with where they're at. Then the word comes back to him. Yes, they got your letter. Yeah, things are starting to shape up a little bit. They're like, they feel bad about how they treated you and all this kind of stuff. So he writes a fourth letter, which was kept for us, which is Second Corinthians. Are we all still following with me on this? So we, what we do have is the second and the fourth letter. It's first and second Corinthians. That's the story behind the correspondence. All right. In this letter, guys, we're going to actually look at a verse. Are you ready for this? I've set this thing up for like 15 minutes now. Here's, the, here's actual text that we have uh, handed down to us from the early church about what was included in Paul's fourth letter to this church as he's trying to defend his apostleship and his authority. He still is trying to be like, hey, um, I, have, I think I have good reason to be in a position of authority over you. Verse 6, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, right? He's coming off of this piece where um, they, they are talking about how there are other pastors and other preachers and itinerant preachers like him who have come in, who have done far more charismatic things, far more showy things, far more emotional things, and they like to boast about what they've done, and they kind of fit the MO of like, hey, you kind of have to boast to get your voice heard here, and he's like never taking that approach. And so what he's saying, I don't boast, but even if I did, if I did boast, what I said, at least it would be true. This is for, here's the translation. Even if I was dumb enough to say I'm the best, at least I wouldn't be lying. So, again, did I mention that people didn't like Paul, that he was a polarizing personality, the ego, the cockiness, whatever. And some people think it's important to, like, polish over Paul's brusque nature. Like, if you read some commentaries, like, well, you know, he was kind of, this is how he did. Listen, we all know people like this. You know people like this. You're married to people like this. 
You're dating. First service. I'm, I'm down here in the front row. I, can, I can't see very many people. It's all just a bright light to me, but I can see typically for, first row. For, for first service, front row, this lady is sitting right here, and she's doing this to her husband. <laughs> and uh, I said, Greg, do you want to come up here and share anything? And he's like, nope, I don't. We'll talk about this later. So it was... It was definitely true. You, you, you have people like this in your life, though, right? They say things with no filter, and you love them, and you smile, and you nod, and you're like, you just, uh-huh, yeah, whatever, right? You wink at other people in the room who get it. You talk about it after they leave the room, but you do it in generalities. They're kind of like salt, like really fun to be around in small doses, but like too much of them, you're like, I don't want a vacation with them, but I like hanging out with them once in a while. That's what's taking place here. This is, this is I'm, I'm, I'm conceding some things about Paul and the reality of kind of his personality. I don't know, I don't know that Paul and I would be like besties. I'd like to meet Paul, right? The whole heaven thing, whatever. I mean, that'd be fun, but like, I don't think that we're gonna be like playing cribbage together, all right? I can absolutely respect his work. And then the next part, he brings up a genuine weakness. He goes on from this. He, he begins to say, even if I, you know, if I was gonna boast, and I, I, I would do it, but I'd, I'd back it up. I'd back up my talk. And then he goes, but even I have a weakness, I've got a thorn in my flesh uh, that has caused me some significant pain and uh, caused me to lose out on some significant opportunities. He doesn't go into like he doesn't go into specifics about what this thorn is, and there's lots of speculation about whether it's a health-related issue or a, a personality-related issue or something like that. Um, but it, it, it he doesn't fluff it off either, right? Because we've all seen the people who fluff off like their weaknesses. Tell me something. Tell me a strength about yourself. They're like talk, 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 talk. talk. Tell me what's one of your weaknesses. Uh, people call me a perfectionist sometimes. Oh, get off it. Whatever you're. Whatever. That's not what Paul's doing here. Like, he genuinely is saying, I've got a thorn uh, that I, I know that I have. People who know me know that I have it. I have prayed multiple times for God to take this away from me, fix me, heal me, make me more likable, whatever the thing is. And he keeps saying, no, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. And here's the response. But he did say to me, here's the response that I did get. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For my power. Who's talking? God. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You have a weakness. And Paul goes, I know I have weakness. Instead of hiding this thing, let me bring it out in the open. Let me begin to then boast about it, talk about it, so that God's glory in the success of whatever success that I have as a minister of the gospel, as a church planner, as a whatever, is in spite of me, not because of me. Here's how his words were. Um, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. A couple of things about this that I think are important to think about. Number one, it's pretty common in our society. We have a fairly progressive, I mean, we live in a fairly progressive world, right? Um, where um, it's, it's okay uh, to talk about weaknesses. In fact, it's like a sign of emotional maturity or um, uh, 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 not emo- emotional IQ. What's that? What's that? Anyways, uh, emotional quotient or whatever. Like you're just more in touch with yourself. You're more sensitive to be like, hey, listen, I, uh, I want to make it very, very clear uh, that I'm not perfect at everything. And everybody's like, oh, that's so nice. And you're like, I, de- I genuinely have some weaknesses. And you embrace your own weaknesses. And that's great. Right? That's good. That's fine. Paul's going, but yeah, th- that's not enough. 
because to, to identify the fact that you have weaknesses is a step towards humility, but it goes even further than that. I'm willing to boast about these weaknesses and say, uh, I'm not going to do it in, sp- in spite of these weaknesses because that, all that does is further credit my ego. For those people who go, I've got, these, I've got this successful business, I've got this successful life, I have this successful image on, on Instagram or whatever that, I'm, that you're supposed to be impressed with, even though, did you know I don't even do my own laundry? I, I have to hire it out. Oh, it's so bad. I'm just so busy and I'm terrible at it and I do this, whatever, right? And you're like, oh, that's so human of her. That's so whatever of her. Well, okay, fine, great. But Paul, what Paul is saying is, I, I want to boast about my weakness and, and really stick it in your face and be like, hey, I'm not... I, I, People don't like me, right? I'm, I'm aggressive. I'm way too aggressive. I'm like salt and, and, and I'm, I'm a polarizing person or whatever. Now, God's gonna, whatever happens as a result of my ministry, if I can be upfront with that, then people will reflect back on it and be like, it's amazing what God can do with flawed individuals, even like Paul. And he's like, yeah, that's great. I don't want to like poo-poo my weaknesses and therefore still create some sort of a, oh, wow, Brent's so amazing. I want to, Paul's like, I want to lead with these things so that it, when it works out, it's like, I can't believe. God must be really good at what he does because Paul's kind of a jerk because Paul's kind of tough to be around because Paul's got lots of weaknesses and that he's very fully aware of these things. And the other thing about this that I think is important, this isn't prescriptive. Paul doesn't say you should be like this too, therefore live this way out. Um, he's taking ownership of this as his own personal individual, like I need to do this for me. Um, in other writings of Paul, I've mentioned how he has like this, uh, his style of writing is typically indicative at first, like who you are in Christ and then uh, in, imperative. Here's what you should do. Um, so uh, it, builds up, it builds up the identity issues and then it talks about the ethics. Um, and this really doesn't have a place in either of these two things. This is just Paul working out his own crap on a platform for everybody to see. And it's really enlightening for some of us to be like, oh, I get that. Because again, some things you know in, in life are better caught than taught. I, you don't need me to tell you this. It's, more, it's really more cathartic and, and inspirational for you to see sometimes somebody in a public setting working through this and being like, okay, I need, he didn't tell me I need to do something about this. I'm smart enough to be able to connect the dots and be like, maybe that would be a good thing for me too. Maybe I should, with my weaknesses, not try and hide them, not try and keep up this image, this image, like this Roma perpetua image that invincible, everything's great, don't worry about it. We have a perfect marriage, my kids are great, it's good. I've done all the things that I need to do, I've checked all the boxes, I'm a pretty good human, I'm not perfect, I'll embrace a little bit of weaknesses here off to the side, ha ha ha. And it's so much better, it can be so much better than that. It can be so much bigger than that. Paul is essentially saying this, some people don't like me, some people don't think I'm qualified to do what I need to do. Some people are ashamed that I still make tents for a living. Some people don't think I have what it takes to get the church to the next level. You know what? They are right. They're right. So that when it does work, they're not like, man, Paul just is really great. They're like, wow, God must be really great because Paul's, oof, whew. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 27. This is, again, Paul, this is writing his second letter. We're going backwards a little bit. I, I get that, but this verse is so awesome. This was 
This was in place not only in his correspondence with the church prior to the letter that we just read from, from chapter, or, uh, 2 Corinthians, but this would be kind of the MO of his entire ministry. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Listen, here's what Paul is saying. Uh, You church in Corinth, you don't want to respect my leadership because I'm too broken. You want something more polished. You're fine with it being a little bit frayed along the edges but for the, for the most part, you want something that's really well put together that people see from a distance and think that will continue, that sort of leadership, that kind of leader, who could ever, he could never fail. Um, and, what he's, and what he's trying to say is, I, I want to show you the message of the gospel is that God uses broken things all the time because it's the only thing he has to ever work with in the first place. And when it succeeds, it succeeds because of his participation on it, not because so-and-so is a pretty good person. She's got her act together. For you to reject me and my authority means you don't really truly understand the gospel and how it works in general. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Where Roma perpetuous says, keep it together, keep it proper. The gospel, at least according to Paul, says, lean heavy in your area of weaknesses on your heavenly Father. After all, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So what does this mean <clears throat> for us? All right. What if we corporately, as a church, embrace, and we've, try, I've, we've tried to do this, even, even before this series or whatever. This has been kind of hopefully a pattern for us. What if we embraced our weaknesses? What if we tried to be really good at all the things that we need to be good at, right? Um, but then we were like straightforward and upfront and honest and we're like, hey, this building is 50 years old, sucks. We don't have like all the rooms that we need to do to be able to do a killer youth program. We don't have all of, the, we, we, we've tried to be like, hey, and we know we're not gonna make everybody happy. If, you ha- if, if you've not been offended at something that I've said from the front in the last six months, you haven't been listening hard enough. That's been the problem. Uh, we, we get it. I want this thing to be so broken, not intentionally broken out of laziness, but I want it to be okay to be rough, super rough, so that when it succeeds, it's not because Brent and the leadership team of the church had such a vision for Eastlake. Like, God's at work in this thing. Now, that's great for corporate. Let's bring it down to personal for you. For you in your personal life, you are on a quest for personal happiness and to achieve some sort of a version of life of the good life of what you want it to be, right? I don't know what that looks like for you, success in the area of business, a career that you can look back on and be like, I, I created this, I did this, it was a company, it was a, a thing, it was, I was a good employee, I was a loyal employee for 30 years to uh, peanut oil or something, I don't know what it is, right? Um, I raised a healthy family, I, I paid off the mortgage, uh, we've got a beach house, we've got blah, 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 whatever, right? We can look at those things, and uh, we, can, we can have eventually get to the point where that could be something where we're like, good for you for being disciplined enough to make all the right decisions at the right times, um, and kudos. And it wasn't perfect, there were little sidetracks, we invested something somewhere, that was dumb, shouldn't have done that, but you know what, for the most part, we were pretty good. That, and that's definitely uh, a piece of it, I, I totally get it. But then there's some of it where you're like, when it comes to, I'll just bring it down to the 
thought of, of parenthood, right? Some of you didn't have, I'll just talk to the dads out there for a second. You didn't, you didn't have a great dad. Um, he wasn't part of the picture, wasn't on the scene, maybe he died, maybe just whatever. And yet you want to have, you want to be a great dad for your kid, right? And so you embrace, you can either embrace this weakness that you didn't get a great picture. The picture that you got of a good dad is kind of maybe what you read about, what you saw on TV, or maybe people that you know that you'd be like, I want to be that kind of a dad, even though I don't get to see the behind the scenes because it wasn't like me going on those fishing trips with him and him teaching me how to fish. It was like, I got to listen to that and I got to figure this thing out how to, how to make this work, right? I can either, I can, I can look at that and be like, um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fake it and then hopefully I can make it. Or I can embrace this. I never had that. But I'm going to do my darn best to raise the best kid that I can. And if it happens to work out, if it gets to where he's 21 and he's employable and marryable, and I, like, I look forward to hanging out with him, then that is God at work in this thing, Right? Now, I'm going to give it my best shot, and I'm going to do all the things I need to do. I'm going to read the books and all, all the stuff. But my gosh, I know I'm coming from a point of weakness. And I can do this, and I can raise this son and point to him or this daughter or whatever, inter interject the moms and kids or whatever. It doesn't matter. You can look at this and be like, all right, either I did this, or in spite of my weakness, <laughs> God I, I allowed God, I, that sounds weird. Uh, God used me in spite of this, and now I have this. I've been blessed with this, which is a far better approach. And look at this little empire that I've built. Look at this house that I've created. Look at this family that loves and respects their dad, right? Come on. Paul is doing this from his own personal career standpoint, but we can do this in our own personal life as well. When it comes to Roma Perpetua, there's a feeling, there's a culture's going to drive us to kind of keep this image up and act pretty polished. It's okay to be afraid around the edges, but whatever. Paul says, now the best approach for me has been embrace the weaknesses and rely heavily on a God who can do this. That way, when it works out, it works out because he was a part of it. And I won't be tempted to give myself credit for it and therefore build into my, further into my ego on this. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. I am strong in your areas of weakness because my power is made perfect exactly in your weakness. It is okay to be weak. God embraces that. The whole gospel is about that. And when it comes through, then we can look at and point to and say, this was clearly a God thing and not a me thing. So, Father, our... Um, our prayer is that as we go through our life and as we take personal inventory of our own uh, image and self and our weaknesses, that we would lean heavily into our weaknesses, boast about them even, so that when you use us in spite of it, glory goes to you and not to us who did a pretty good job of managing all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a, a long-term play. It's difficult, and I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know what it looks like in our life and the curse to act on it. As we receive communion, may we always remember um, your love for us. May we respond to that grace with grace for others and devotion to you. So help us in all of our different areas in your name. Amen.